Amen. Thank you so much, team, and love those Christmas carols. Thrilled that we could celebrate baptism this morning and just have this time together as a faith family. And so if you got your Bibles, we are continuing through the book of Ruth, the Old Testament book of Ruth, and we are in Ruth chapter 3. So if you want to invite you to join me there, and as we head there, uh, I want to share with you a phrase that you've probably heard or you maybe have even said at some point uh, in your life. And so this phrase typically comes up when a couple things are happening. Um, they have to deal with a couple, a couple. And so, so you look at a couple and you see and you notice as you watch them, you see an incredible love and care for one another. And so you see this couple and you see their love and care. And then as you continue to observe their life and the way they relate to one another, you start to notice how they begin to, to arrange their lives around one another in, in kind of a sacrificial way. They begin to put like other, the other's time ahead of their own interest. And they begin to, they begin to kind of like, uh, almost like serve and accommodate one another. Uh, you continue to watch this couple and you notice how the direction of their lives seem to kind of align with one another. Um, you see how their interests uh, kind of balance each other out. And they, they're, they, they're, this relationship just seems to be uh, pretty amazing and strong. And then you also uh, notice that it just seems like God has brought them together. And so you got all of this going on in this relationship and as you're observing, it's possible to say a phrase, something like this. I think I hear wedding bells. All right. I think I hear wedding bells. Why? Because you see this couple that you believe that God has brought together. You see their paths aligning. You see them sacrificing for one another. Uh, you see their love and their care for one another. You see that they are headed in the same direction. And perhaps you say the phrase, I think I hear wedding bells. Well, in Ruth chapter three, um, as we look at Ruth and we look at Boaz, we are hearing wedding bells. And I don't know if you can hear them yet, but we're going to hear them as we get a little closer in this story. And so in, in Ruth chapter 3, I want to give a quick kind of update as to how did we land here in Ruth chapter 3. It's an amazing, amazing book of the Bible that... that that for, for those in the story, so like for Naomi, for Ruth, for Boaz, these, these, uh, these people we've been introduced to in the story, all they can see is what is right in front of them. But as we zoom out, what we see is that their story is a part of a way bigger story. And that is the encouragement for us also, is that for each of you, that your story is part of a way bigger story. And so we're introduced in chapter one to a family. The, the family is uh, the family of Elimelech. Elimelech is the dad. He's married to Naomi and they have two sons, Malon and Kilion. They live in Bethlehem. And the, the word Bethlehem means house of bread. But the problem was, is there was a famine in the land and there was no bread in the house. And so Elimelech makes a decision. And so he makes this decision, I'm assuming, on his wisdom and what he thinks is right and honestly what he wants to do. Because he is currently living in the land of promise. He is in the promised land. He is in Bethlehem. But Elimelech looks around and he sees the greener grass. And he makes a decision. 
He makes a decision to turn his back on the promise of God, to turn his back on the people of God, and to turn his back on the land of God, and to do what he wants to do, pick up his family and go about 50 to 60 miles east to a place called Moab, chasing after the greener grass. And my thought is, my hunch is that all of us could probably share a time in our life where we became dissatisfied about what our current situation was. And not necessarily because we felt like God wanted us to do something, but rather we wanted to do something. And we chased after that greener grass only to find out it is not green. The grass is green where you water it. And so he picks up his family and goes to Moab. So you got Israelites living in Moab and for, for, for many, many years there have been great tension between the Moabites and between the Israelites. And if you chase the, the Moab ancestry back to its beginnings, it, it's, it's, it's troubling because their story began with a guy named Lot. Abraham, Father Abraham, many sons, many sons have Father Abraham. Well, Abraham had a nephew and that nephew's name was Lot. Lot had an incestuous relationship with his oldest daughter and they had a child and that child's name was Moab and that's how Moab has its beginnings and all through the years if you chase the history you will see that there is massive tension that is happening between the Israelites and the Moabites so now the Israelites have made their way into Moab this family and what it becomes a 10 year nightmare. A 10-year nightmare. We don't know exactly where it happened along the 10 years, but Elimelech passes away. And so Naomi is now a broken-hearted widow. Her boys, Malon and Kilion, they marry Moabite women. And you can imagine, the, because of the tension of the Israelites and the Moabites, that that, that was a troubling thing for the family, but, but yet they, they marry Moabite daughters. Their names are Orpah and Ruth, who this book is named after. And we don't know exactly when it happened in the 10 years, but what we know is both of those boys died. And so you have Naomi, who is not only a brokenhearted widow, but now is a motherless widow. Her heart is shattered into a million pieces. She is living in a nightmare. And all that she has is herself and her two Moabite daughters. And so she gets word while she's at Moab that there is bread in Bethlehem again. And so she returns toward Bethlehem and her daughter-in-law's desire to stay with her. But she begs and she pleads with them, listen, don't go. Don't go. Don't go. She talks about how bitter she is, that she was too bitter for them to stay with her. She was so bitter, her heart shattered, and, and surely she knew what type of welcome her Moabite daughters would, would receive if they made it back to Bethlehem. And so she encourages them. She says, listen, stay in Moab, get married, have children, live happily ever after. But just, I'm just, I'm going back. And so Orpah, one of the daughters, kisses her literally goodbye. We never read about her again. But Ruth stays. The Bible says Ruth clings to her. It's the very same word used in Genesis 2 when it talks about how a man and woman shall leave their mother and father and cleave or cling to one another. This is the picture. And so for Ruth, this is one of the most famous passages on commitment found in the whole Bible. You read in, in Ruth chapter 1. Ruth says, she says, where you, 
Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And in that, that commitment, we see this testimony of Ruth, this Moabite from a land of idolatry and sexual immorality, committing her life to the living God as her one true God. And they make their way back to Bethlehem. And I can't imagine what that ride or, or walk must have been like. But they make it back and they see Naomi. And it's been 10 years and they're like, Naomi, is, is that you? Is that you? You can imagine the, the heartache and the years of struggle and tension and loss. How that can wear on you physically. And they see her and Naomi says, no, don't call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. And so it's in this super, super uh, dark season that Naomi and, and Ruth make their way back to Bethlehem. But there's a little ray of sunshine that's in the very last verse of chapter one, where it says, and it was the time of barley harvest. And that is significant. Because what appears to be the absolute darkest season that they could experience this side of eternity is actually God is setting the stage that their story is going to be a part of a way, way bigger story. That as we follow this, this relationship through the rest of the book over this week and next week, what we're going to see is that their story points to a much larger story. And that is what we call the story of the grand redemptive narrative, which is the story from Genesis to Revelation of how God is pursuing a people to redeem for himself and for his glory and how to lead people from a place of, of famine to a place of feast, to leave a, a place of wasteland to a place of life giving eternal relationship. And so where we left off in one and we headed chapter two and the short story is it just so happened to be barley harvest season. And it just so happened that God had already provided a law for his people that those that were landowners would leave the edges of their fields and only harvest one time through. That was to take care of the poor and the destitute. And so Ruth, knowing that this law is in place, she goes out seeking food because they're hungry. They're hungry. They, they look for food. And so they, they're looking for someone, someone out there who is obedient to God, who desires to follow God's heart, God's, God's law. And so she just so happens to find a field that just so happens to be Boaz, who happens to be a kinsman redeemer, but she doesn't know that yet. And we're going to learn more about that in just a second. And it just so happens that while of all fields, she's in Boaz's field, it just so happens that Boaz comes in from Bethlehem to the field. And I think what we begin to see is all these just so happens aren't just so happens. This is God orchestrating events to redeem a people for himself. And we begin to see Naomi's bitter heart begin to warm to a heart of blessing. And this is where we jump into chapter three. By the way, Boaz, Boaz said, I will protect you. I will care for you. Here's 20 to 50 pounds of, 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 of wheat for you. Take it back to your home. Take some leftovers from lunch. And when Naomi saw it, no doubt her jaw was dropped through the floor at what God had provided. But then Ruth didn't know. She's like, where did you go? She says, Boaz is filled. Then her jaw really dropped through the ground because she knew 
that Boaz was a kinsman redeemer of all the places she could have landed in the field of her kinsman redeemer. Let's look at chapter three, verse one. The Bible says this, that Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative or our kinsman with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, just to pause right here and, and threshing floors. If you're cruising around North Mississippi and you're driving by fields, you're not going to see these. Uh, we don't necessarily see threshing floors, but I think it's important to get a picture about what this is. A threshing floor was like a raised platform that would sit in or near the, the fields that were being harvested. And when harvest season came and they harvested, they would take that all and put it on the threshing floor. And and, and Boaz was winnowing. Naomi, Naomi knew exactly what she was doing. He's winnowing. Winnowing is a, is a, is a, is a hard work, but basically it's, you, you take a big old pitchfork and you, you stick it in the harvest and you throw it up in the air, like the wheat up in the air. And winnowing is the process of separating the chaff from the, from the seed. And so they were located on the Mediterranean, probably a, a breeze blowing there. So he dumps it up, throws it in the air, the chaff blows away and the seed falls. And that process continues and continues and continues and continues till you get to the seed and you have this harvest there. And they literally as a family, when harvest time came, they would celebrate, but they would sleep right there around it. Why? Because you don't want anybody to steal your grain, right? So they're, they're camped out around there. So Naomi knows what he's doing. And she says this, and, and I also think it's important that uh, I took a quick poll at the eight o'clock hour. I'm curious here. Couples in the room question. How many of you were, how many of you met your spouse through a, we'll just call them a matchmaker, somebody other than yourself? All right. Where's that? I see that hand. I see that hand. All right. A few of us. Okay. Okay. So, so, so this Naomi is a, she's a matchmaker. Like That's what she said. Cause when she knows Boaz is kinsman redeemer, she's connecting the dots and she's like, okay, I've got a plan. Ruth, listen to me do exactly what I say, because she's going to play that matchmaker. And she's telling Ruth what she is going to do. She's going to give specific instruction. And in verse three, she says this, Ruth, Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. In other words, hey, Ruth, before you go into the presence of what, of who we'll call Boaz, the Lord of the harvest. Before you go into the presence of the Lord of the harvest, before you do that, wash yourself. She was a hard worker, no doubt. Wash yourself fragrance, all right, smell, the aroma, put on a cloak. They would have had a, a, maybe a special dress or, or an article of clothing that would have been for like a special festival or even weddings. And what she's saying is prepare yourself for the presence in whom you're about to step into. And I, I think it's important for us to track with this a bit because I love what Hebrews 4.12 says that we can have confidence that we can approach the throne of grace and find help in our hour of need. We can have confidence when we come to the throne, when we come to God in prayer, have this confidence. It says confidence, but it doesn't say carelessness. It's like, 
When we are approaching the presence of the Lord of the harvest, in this case for Ruth, or the Lord of Lords for our case as believers, that we would not have a flippant attitude about who it is that we have the privilege of, of, of coming direct access to because of the blood of Jesus. And that is the Lord of Lords. And so in the Bible, we see the church, our faith family, we see it described as different pictures. The church is described as a body. Romans 12, you can read about it. The, 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 you know, Christ is the head and, and the faith family is the body. Every member plays a specific and important role in the body. I think you would agree if you lost a, 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 an ability to use one of your members of your body, you would miss it. And so that's why I love this picture is, is that the encouragement is every single believer has a vital part to play in the local church. Every single believer. And so we see this imagery of the body. We also see the imagery of a family. And that as believers in the Lord Jesus, that we have been adopted into his family. We're brothers, we're sisters, we're family. We're the family of God. But another picture that the Bible paints is that the church is a bride. Now, Ruth is going to be a bride. The church is a bride, the bride of Christ. In John 3, the Bible speaks of Christ being the bridegroom and Christ is that bride. Ephesians 5.25 is the greatest marriage wisdom instruction in the Bible. It says this, it says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so it's this picture of sacrifice. Christ is the bridegroom. We are his bride. And so I think there is absolute application for us as believers is that we would not take for granted or flippantly approach the throne of God, but rather that we perhaps would even process some of these same steps. Hey, before you go to the Lord of the harvest, listen, wash yourself. This idea is this picture of, of, of if we want good, sweet, strong fellowship with our heavenly father, we can probably all testify that they have been things that we may allow in our lives that don't honor the Lord and they get in the way of that relationship and the relationship is in everything that it should be. So what do we need to do as believers? We confess our sin. We call it what it is. We repent, which means we have a change of mind about that and listen to this. And then we rest in his grace. We rest in his forgiveness. But so we, we wash ourselves we clean ourselves. The Bible talks about how Ruth said, or Naomi said to Ruth, um, to, to anoint yourself is this idea of, of perfume. In other words, the scent, the aroma that you're carrying into the threshing floor, like smell good, basically. To which I would say this, I, I don't know if we think about this a lot of times, but every life puts out a smell. Every life puts out an odor. Your life puts out an odor or an aroma. And so the question is, what is the aroma of your life? I want you to think about the way you relate with your family. I want you to think of the way you relate with your coworkers, the way you relate in the store or in the checkout line or when you blow a tire or whatever that might be. Like what aroma is coming off of your life? And I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.15. He says, we are, in other words, the church we are the aroma of Christ, the aroma. And so may our aroma not be one of arrogance, 
And may aroma, our aroma may not be one of anger or our aroma not be one of just meanness, but rather that we would carry the aroma of Christ, the fragrance of Christ. And then she just put on her, put on her cloak. It's this special dress or, or outfit that they wear for special ceremonies, weddings, things. And, and all through scripture, you see clothing cast in, in the light of spiritual meaning. And so I think about as a believer, what Christ has done for us. And I want you to think about this. Because the prophet Jeremiah tells us that our righteousness, in other words, our rightness is as filthy rags. Like our righteousness, our goodness is as filthy rags. And that the Bible says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so that as believers, we are clothed in his righteousness. And what encouragement that is, especially when the enemy creeps in and tries to steal and to kill and destroy. We're remote. We were reminded from Romans eight that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are clothed in his righteousness alone. Only by his grace and his righteousness can we stand in the presence of a mighty God. So what does Ruth do? Ruth does exactly what Naomi says and watch what she's going to do. She's going to do exactly what she says and she's going to humble herself and she's going to sit at the feet of the Lord of the harvest. And then the Lord of the harvest is going to do everything else. Let's look at verse three. The Bible says, wash therefore, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking but when he lies down, observe the place where he lies and then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. You may be like, what, what is she doing? <laughs> Especially the people who don't like feet. Okay. Like you just like feet gross you out. You're like, what is she doing? What's going on here? What's happening? And it's exactly what we're reading, exactly what's happening. Naomi is saying, listen, they're going to be there on the threshing floor. Why? Because they have worked all day. They have been winnowing all day. They are exhausted. As a family, they're going to lay down. They're going to basically camp out on that threshing floor around their grain. And so they're going to celebrate and they're going to celebrate the harvest, but they're going to sleep right there. And so, so, so that's where he's going to be. So when they go, I want you to go and I want you to uncover his feet. Like, what, what in the world? What's happening? Look at verse six. So she went down to the threshing floor and she did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid down. What is going on? She's subtly getting his attention. I want you to imagine some of y'all like it's getting cold, right? It's like 20 something degrees from what I heard. 20 something degrees. It's getting cold. And some of us love covers, right? You love sleeping with covers. Lots, perhaps lots and lots of covers. All right. And so if you're a lots and lots of covers sleeper, then on a cold night, you know, when there is a part of your body that is not under those covers, 
And at some point you're going to stir and at some point you're going to wake up and you're going to be like, I'm cold, what's going on? And you're going to realize that your feet aren't under the cover. And so what's going to happen is you're going to get the cover and you're going to cover your feet up and you're probably going to go back to sleep. So they're on the threshing floor. They are outside. I don't know if it's cold or not, but it's breezy, no doubt, because they've been winnowing. And so what Ruth is doing is she's going and she's pulling back the cover from his feet. And the Bible says she just lays down because in her mind, at some point, he's going to stir and he's going to wake up and he's going to be like, what, what's going on? And so we see the story continue when it says, verse eight, at midnight, the man Boaz was startled and turned over and behold, a woman was at his feet. <laughs> he wakes up, it's midnight. He's been sleeping. My feet are cold. What? What's going on here? There's, a, there's somebody at the end of my bed. Not last night, but last Saturday night before, uh, before, um, before Sunday. If y'all remember, there was a lot of lightning and, and it was a, a, a pretty big storm. And, and even last night, I remember I was sleeping and, and all of a sudden I just hear like footsteps. <laughs> and, and, and so I, I kind of like semi kind of wake up and I look up like both my girls are in our bedroom just like staring at us and, and it startles you because it's like, what, what are you doing? Like, oh, I'm scared. It's a storm. And, and, but, but like you get startled in the middle of the night. So that's what's happening. Like the, the, the it's midnight. My, my feet are cold. Oh, there's a woman standing at the end of my bed. And here's what he says in verse nine. I imagine him kind of like wiping his eyes a little bit. And he said this, who are you? Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. And that is the marriage proposal. So that sounds a little bit different from like getting down on one knee and isn't he supposed to do that? And she's a, no, like she's, she understands Old Testament law. She understands that her only choice for redemption is, listen to this, a kinsman redeemer. That's her only, that's her only choice. And so what he's saying is spread your wings over your servant. We, we use that terminology like, Hey, let's take, like, take somebody under your wing. When you're taking somebody under the wing, what are you doing? You are, you are covering them. You are protecting them. You are providing them. You're going to make sure they're okay. You're going to bring them in. And what Ruth is saying is take me under your wing because you are a redeemer. Another way to say it, you are my redeemer. There was a law called the law of Leverite marriage, which basically means that if you had had a husband that passed away, the husband's brother could take you as his wife. And that redeemer had the ability. And I love that word redeem. It means to purchase. It means to buy back. That redeemer has the ability to purchase and buy back. It also means to rescue. It means to save. Only the redeemer can buy back. Only the redeemer can save. Only the redeemer can rescue. And do you hear the gospel? If you, if you peel out a little bit, you begin to hear the gospel. You hear Christ, our redeemer, who is the only one who can pay, who can pay our sin debt. Like he's the only one that can buy us back because of his shed blood on the cross. He's the only one who can rescue us. He's the only one that can save us. And what, what Boaz is telling her is he is saying, I am going to redeem you. She says, please redeem me. 
rescue me. Verse 10, the Bible says, and he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have gone after, you, you, you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear because I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. And now lie down until the morning. So evidently, there is a closer kinsman redeemer. We don't know who it is. They don't introduce us to him. Maybe it's his older brother. We don't know. But evidently, in the line of kinsman redeemer, there's someone that's closer than Boaz is. And what Boaz is saying is he is saying, I will redeem you. But there is someone's closer. So if, if someone closer is going to redeem you, that's great. That's good. But I will redeem you if not. And if you notice what's happening is that Boaz is actually bringing himself under that law. And he's honoring this law that was in place. Think about what Jesus has done. Jesus, the author of the Old Testament law, brought himself under that law to obey that law perfectly so that you and I could go free. You see this incredible picture. And so Boaz, with this incredible confidence and assurance of saying, I will redeem you. And I can only imagine that Ruth laid her head down that night with such incredible peace, knowing that she was going to be okay and knowing that she was going to be redeemed. And all along the way, what you see her doing is you find herself operating and living life in obedience to the light that she has. And she's trusting God with everything else. You see that. So this application for our lives is that by grace, by God's grace, we do everything we know to do and we trust God to do what only he can do. And I want to be per like, I want to be clear saying that what I'm not saying is like a limit, like it sounds good to chase after the greener grass, go for it. God will do the rest. No, I'm talking about when you walk in relationship with God. And you surrender your ear, you sit at the feet of the Lord of Lords and you listen to his voice and you listen to his word and by his grace and his strength on his wisdom and his guidance, you do in his strength and his wisdom and his guidance, what you know to do. And he's going to do what only he can do. You see it all through Ruth's experience. You saw it when she knew the law about the, the, how the, how the leftovers were left in the field. She knew what God's word says. She in faith stepped out and sought out someone honoring God to take, to take that food because they were hungry and they were destitute. And what did she find? She just so happened to find herself in Boaz's field. In this case, she knows the, the, the word of the Leverite marriage law. She understands this, this law that has been given to God's people, she understands it. And so she is going to step out in faith and she's going to go to the threshing floor and she's going to peel back his, his, the cover of his feet. And she's going she's to, you know, uh, appeal to him as her redeemer. And, and, but she can't make that, she can't make it all happen, but she can do what she knows to do based on God's grace and God's wisdom and God's providence. And you see God God doing what only he can do. And so here's the encouragement for us. Because my hunch is, 
is that in this room and even listening in online, we find ourselves worrying about situations that we have zero control to fix. Matter of fact, it is tempting to spend the majority of our mental and emotional energy on things that we cannot change. But rather, by God's grace, we would do what we know we can do. That's that area of influence and trust Him with the rest. So it might be that you find yourself in relational tension. You find yourself in a relational tension at work. You find yourself in a relational tension with maybe co-workers. You find yourself in relational tension with maybe your family. You find yourself in relational tension maybe even with your own children in your home. So you find this tension. So, so what does that look like? It looks like by God's grace and his wisdom and his strength, we do everything we know to do that we have the light to have. And then we trust him to do what only he can do. It could be that there are other tensions or struggles. It could be financial stress. It could be a sickness or an illness that is out of our power to fix. But yet as we find ourselves surrendering, sitting at the feet of the Lord of Lords and listening to his word, soaking our heart in his word and by his grace, striving to take that step of obedience that we know he's called us to. And we trust him with everything else. God will show himself faithful. He always gives enough light for the next step. Every single time. Verse 14, the Bible says, So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Now you read that and say, what? What's going on? Say, I thought Boaz was a godly man. I, you know, Ruth loved God and obedient to God. Is something weird happening right now? It's actually just the opposite. Boaz is a godly man and he's looking out for her. He's a man above reproach. And so what he's doing is he understands that if the rest of the people on the threshing floor wake up and see a woman next to him, they could assume the worst. And they could create in their minds this reality that's not reality and by the end of the day all of Bethlehem has heard what's going on with Boaz but instead he's looking out for her he's a godly man he understands he says here's what I want you to do before anyone wakes up you've honored the Lord I want you to go back I will redeem verse 15 the Bible says and he said bring the garment that you're wearing and hold it out and so she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. So there, just this is just kind of a, a little extra bit of encouragement take care of your mother-in-laws, right? That's what Boaz is doing. He's like, come here, come here, Ruth. And he, he loads her up. He's like, this is for Naomi. And he, he, he sends it on. He really does. But, but, he's all, but he's a godly man. He's others focused. He's thinking about others. He knows that the picture is bigger than, than Ruth. And so he, he takes care of her. I love that the Lord of the harvest is a servant and just echoes the life of Christ who said the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so in verse 18, she replied, this is Naomi to Ruth, wait, my daughter, 
Until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And that is one of the hardest things to do, isn't it? Wait. You're familiar with the psalm that says, be still and know that I am God. This is where Ruth is at. But notice, Ruth isn't, Ruth isn't sitting back doing nothing. She has done, she's absolutely been engaged in faith-filled action all along the way. But for Naomi to Ruth, listen, you have been faithful to do all that God has given you the light to see and the light to obey. And so now be still and know that he will do the work of a redeemer. Be still and know, be still and wait. Ruth responded in faith. She took every action. She did everything Naomi told her to do. And now it's time to wait. But here's the picture of the great redemption story is that the matter of redemption can only be fulfilled by Boaz. Like there's nothing Ruth can do to make it happen or make it work. Like she doesn't say to Boaz on the side, hey, I know you're the redeemer, but I know you could really use my help on a few things. And so let me come alongside and let me do this and let me do this and let me do that. And then our odds of this whole thing pulling off is going to be much greater. This wasn't based on Ruth's character. It wasn't based on Ruth's ability or her skill set. It was purely a act of grace on Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, to go and do the work that only a kinsman redeemer can do. The matter of redemption can only be handled by him. Ruth can't add to it, only he has the power. And so here's some encouragement for us today. Our redemption is made possible only through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his glorious resurrection. Our redemption is made possible only through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his glorious resurrection. Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches, the riches of his grace. Isn't God so good? He's so good. I mean, I am a sinful, very Moabite-like person who on my best day can't work up enough good works to be pleasing in the sight of a holy God. I need a redeemer. I need someone to save me. I need someone to rescue me. I need someone to pay this sin debt that I have no way of paying on my own. I am bankrupt apart from the grace-filled, mercy-filled work of Christ our Redeemer. And so we see that this story is pointing us to a bigger story. We see that this story is pointing us to the hope of Christmas. We see that this picture is pointing us to the Messiah who alone has the power to redeem, to pay our sin debt, to rescue us, to save us. And so my one question to our friends here today and friends listening online is simply this question. And that is, have you been redeemed?
Have you been redeemed? Ruth did not sit in a corner and suck her thumb and just say, I hope all this works out. She took every faith-filled step she had the light to take and God showed himself faithful on her behalf. And so today you may be able to relate with Ruth. Maybe you are not from Moab and but you totally understand what it's like to live in a world that is filled with idolatry and immorality. And that it probably, nobody has to convince any of us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be rescued. You will be bought back and you will experience a grace like none other, the rest of forgiveness, peace in your relationship with God, a mission for this life and eternity with him forever and ever and ever and ever. And the Redeemer is extending his invitation to a relationship with him. So do you have a Redeemer? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? The only Redeemer for mankind. And for the believer in the room, you maybe you're in one of those dark seasons. The encouragement is God is working. God is working. Naomi and Ruth, they could have never seen it by the end of chapter one, but barley harvest was coming. And so just the encouragement that God is at work, that God is at work by God's grace, do everything that his strength is with him. He reveals you to do. Trust him with everything else. Focus on what God has allowed you, giving you the strength to do. Trust him with everything else. And let's watch God work in incredible, incredible ways. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this Old Testament book. Thank you for the book of Ruth. The only book in the Bible named after a non-Jewish woman. The God that all along your heart has been for all of the world, even the Moabites, even those who would be characterized as immoral and idolaters. But God, your, your redemption is for all people. All people who will acknowledge their sinfulness, repent of their sin, have a change of mind about their sin, and surrender their lives to you as their Lord based on the perfect life, death, and glorious resurrection of King Jesus. So God, I pray if there's anybody here today who is not in a relationship with you, has not come to that time and place in their lives where they have received you as their Lord, their Redeemer, I pray, God, that today would be the day of salvation. And I pray for the believer, God, who is struggling, wrestling with what to do. God, would you grant wisdom and strength and that as believers, we would, we would take the step that you've shown us in your grace and in your wisdom and trust you with everything else. God, we love you. Thank you for the bigger story. And we pray these things all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me and
And uh, we're going to have a song of response. And as we do that, uh, just that encouragement to know if you're here today and you're like, you know what? I need to talk to somebody. I want somebody to pray for me, pray with me. We would love to pray with you. We would love to encourage you. If you want to come to the altar, come to pray, please be obedient to that faith-filled step, whatever it is that God is showing you to do, and he'll be faithful to do what only he can do.